0: Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Number one advice to fathers from me in my limited experience be a man of integrity. And I said no particular order, but I I think this has to rank, rank way up there on duties of fatherhood. As a man of integrity, you never have to worry about being discovered for not being integrous. Now the Bible says a lot about integrity. If you just want to search that word integrity, there's more scriptures that I'm going to take time to stop and read to you today. But I'm going to share two or three with you to give you a sampling of how important integrity is. In Proverbs 10:9, it says, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Number two, integrity is better than wealth. Proverbs 28 6 says better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways so if you have integrity you're better off than the person who does not have integrity but is rich that's that's a priceless possession your integrity is priceless and number three we have a reading from Job where he suffered great loss think about it his family his farm, everything he had, his health was just about totally shot. Nothing left but just clinging to life. And he figured that he could lose all that, but he, he just couldn't afford to lose his integrity. Remember as his frim, friends kept coming to him, and he guarded his integrity. He says this, he says, My lips will not speak falsehood, my tongue will not utter deceit, far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I like that. Men here today, as I'm challenging you to be men of integrity, maybe you just ought to memorize that. That's a good one to announce to you and to the world and to Satan every day. Till the day I die, I will not put away integrity from me. Now you can probably mentally roll back over your life, your recent history, maybe your distant history or whatever, and see if there have been times when you were playing fast and loose with your integrity. Integrity is easy to lose and it's hard to get back. It's not impossible. But if you're on your journey back to integrity, then you certainly understand how easily that is forfeited and how precious and priceless It is. If you still have your integrity, I hope you appreciate what you have, and you will not bargain that away. The second thing about integrity is it's important to find your motivation for living a life of integrity. What would be the most uh, common motivation for living a life of integrity for a man of God? It would probably be, I want to please God. I want to live right before Him. I don't want God to be disappointed in me. But you realize that as noble as that is, that it doesn't hold everybody to integrity? One experienced, seasoned elderly minister stood before a group of ministers at a pastors conference and he talked to them about their integrity he would say he said this i would like to tell you that when i have been tempted to lust i simply called on the holy spirit to fill me and i would win in my battle but he said the truth is It was not the Holy Spirit that most motivated me to live above my temptations to indulgence. He said, here's what really motivated me. I kept hearing Luke 12.3 in my mind over and over again. Therefore, whatsoever you have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which you have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. And this is what one pastor calls the housetop expose. Now, come on, man. You have to have some concern for people finding you out. And we would like to think that in that moment of our greatest temptation, all we do is say, fill me, Holy Spirit, and you're zapped, and you're good to go. Wouldn't that be Wonderful. But that didn't work for David. He fell miserably. This was a man that was after God's own heart. But he was after another man's wife. And his pursuit of the other man's wife won over his pursuit for God's heart. It won. It beat him. And I'm not so sure that at that point... He cared anything about his reputation because he was king, and I guess he figured he could get away with anything he could. So I'm not saying that you cared, <clears throat> caring about your reputation is stronger than your appreciation of God. I'm saying you have to find what it is in your life that truly motivates you to live a life in integrity. And for David, it didn't happen to be because this pleases God. Or this doesn't please God. It didn't work for him. He failed. And how many of you here today, simply because you loved God, uh, it didn't carry you in the time of your time? Temp- Don't raise your hand. That's a rhetorical question. <clears throat> but think about it. How many times your love for God didn't necessarily carry you through that real trial? A fool has no fear. You, you see, your reputation is what others know about you, and your character is what you and God know about you. We would like to think that our character is most important to us. But for some people, it doesn't carry them. But one thing you don't want, mister, is to yield to your secret life and wake up the next morning and find yourself naked on the rooftop for the whole world to see. You don't want that. I promise you, you don't want that. You don't want to live your secret life and wake up the next day and open the morning paper and you are the headlines. You don't want that. But no matter what it takes, no matter what it takes, it is important that you preserve integrity as a man of God, as a husband, as a father. Don't you throw that away. Number two piece of advice, admit when you are wrong. Arrogant pride is a terrible thing, and somehow some men think fatherhood comes with the right to pretend you're never wrong. Somehow they think, I am the father, and what I say is truth. And it isn't always. I'm the father, I never make mistakes. As soon as the family figures that out, we're all going to get along better. I, I hate to air dirty laundry. I hate to talk about family skeletons in our closet. I loved my father dearly, but I learned a lot from him. Some of the things I learned from him is because of the things he did right, and some of the things I learned from him is because of the things he didn't quite get right. I expect my boys to do the same thing. Learn from me what I do right, do better than me when you see that I've mistaken. So one of the things my father had a problem with is ever admitting he was wrong. I could call up instance after instance after instance of uh, things that happened where my father was always blaming somebody else that happened. I never once remember him saying, well, I will take responsibility for this. still having a little struggle with his mic, so we're making the exchange right now. One time, I had pulled my car into the driveway. We had a double driveway at the house, but the second driveway was not a full drive to the street. You had to curve it into the single drive that led into it to get out. So I had pulled my car in behind my father's truck. I didn't quite get it pulled in far enough. So my father got out and backed his truck up. He hit the rear panel of my car. And he came in and got me and chewed me out. I had no business not parking that car right. He hit it. And I still to this day, I'm trying to process this, can't figure out how comes he's the one that drove and he's the one that hit it, and it was all my fault. I still can't get my brain around that. I don't want to be that. And I've made a lot of mistakes as a father. And I started off the reincarnation of my dad. Because that's all sometimes you know is what has been modeled before you. It's what dad did, I guess, is the right thing to do. But I, you get down the road a little ways, and if you're sensitive to the Holy Spirit, you begin to figure out that maybe you're not tracking quite right with God. And so I began to reassess. And I, I, I discovered somewhere in my parenting uh, adventure that I made mistakes and I needed to ask my boys to forgive me for making those mistakes. Now, you don't know how hard it is to break through that barrier when it hasn't been modeled for you. And so I... I began to, to talk to my boys at, at various occasions and, and tell them the mistakes I'd made. And my oldest son had gone off to the Navy. And I was reflecting on what I had done in bringing this young man up. And some of the, uh, he was the first one. So all, all the big mistakes I made on him. So I could get a little better with the second one, a little better with the third one. You know how that is, parents. And I called him up. He was stationed in Mississippi. And we were talking on the phone. I said, I I just need to take a moment and tell you that I realize in raising you, I made some mistakes. And I want to ask you, would you forgive me for having failed? And my son on the other end says, what are you talking about? Well, now I've got to get specific. And I began to put, call up certain situations where I had made a mistake or reacted to what he had done or, 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 or said, and, and it wasn't the right way. I, I wanted a redo. You don't get redos. And, he, and his response was, I didn't think anything of it, Dad. Well, see, it may not have been a big thing to him because he was accepting this from an authority as somehow normal behavior. But I knew as an older, more mature person, that wasn't right behavior may have been common, but it it wasn't good. And so I had to clear the air. I said, it doesn't matter. I see that that was not good. And I don't want you to repeat that. So I'm asking, can you forgive me? And can you not emulate that? And we had a long talk. And I think he still ended up thinking I was having an emotional breakdown when we were done. But I got the job done. Admit when you're wrong. I wish I had the courage to ask you women. If your husband is the kind who is willing and able, I'm not even going to finish asking it because I'm afraid somebody's going to nod their head or stand up and clap. Here, here, right here. I don't want to go there. But maybe you, sir, should take personal inventory. Are you living with somebody that is able to say, I'm sorry? I made a mistake, because that is a very manly thing to do in God's eyes, a very responsible thing. It takes humility to do that, but it, the man who, who uh, has to kneel before God and tell God, in my life, God, I've been wrong. I've been on a fool's errand. I confess my sins. I need forgiveness. I've been wrong. It takes that same kind of honesty and self-assessment to be able to talk to your children, talk to your family, and say, everybody listen to me. I was wrong, and I need you to forgive me. And uh, there might be some people here who are bucking up against this and saying, you know, if, if they find out that you make mistakes, you've lost control of this family for the rest of the... No, you won't. I promise you, people who learn... To follow somebody who knows that they're not perfect. Everybody in the world knows you're not perfect except you. This is just trying to get you on the same page with everybody else. For you to be able to say, now I can see I'm not perfect. I need to ask forgiveness. That can be so healing. That can be powerful for relationships. Number three. I would encourage fathers to learn the difference between negotiation and moral compromise. The unwillingness to compromise equals integrity. But the unwillingness to negotiate is nothing but stubbornness. And if we we are now talking about that macho attitude that says it's my way or the highway, this is the fault of the man who thinks he is king of his home. Now, biblically, we don't have any, any uh, indication you're a king of your home. You're the priest of your home. There's a huge difference between being a priest and a king. A king can be tyrannical. You know, whatever I say, that's the way it is. No questions asked. No negotiating. I've already said it. If I back out, I'm not much of a man. I have to stick to it. It's not the kind of an attitude that God can bless your home but the kind that can negotiate. And negotiation never involves clear moral issues. Compromising or not compromising always has to do with clear moral issues. But negotiation never involves those issues. No, negotiation is the other things in life that it's not. Immoral, it's it's just an issue. It's just a matter of opinion most of the time. That's where negotiation takes place. Can you negotiate? This man that has delusions of kingship, he has come to be known as a man who rules with an iron fist. He makes his rules arbitrarily, and he demands rigid adherence by others. Now, I was listening to George Westlake, Jr. preach at one of the chapel services down in Springfield, Missouri. He is pastoring this church, and his children are teenagers. He's telling this story. And they come to him, and they say, Dad, it's not fair. And he says, what is not fair? He said, they said, we would like to go... To the theater. We'd like to see like the Disney movies and a few things decent. And you have never let us go. And it's not fair because all the deacon's kids go. Now, this gives you an understanding of how this pastor had ruled his family for that many years. You knew the rules. We set the rules. We don't do that. Only deacon's kids do that stuff. And you know deacon's kids. And they said, it's not fair. And he said, you know what? You're right. He said, I just suddenly had this revelation. What was I doing to my kids? He said, if it's a decent movie, you can go. Now, it was really a radical move by a person who had previously set a boundary in their family. But this man had the integrity of character to assess the situation and say this is an area that is up for negotiation. I can either be this iron-fisted father that says no because I said so because I'm not going to be embarrassed by your uh, your behavior and it, it matters to me what people think about me and think about my family and we are models and he just threw it all out. He said, you're right. Go have fun. Now, you don't know how liberating that was for me to hear some pastor who was able to discern negotiation. Now, we're not just talking about pastors today, because you're not pastors. But what about you? What have you said in your family? You want your family to be perfect, and you've got all these rules and all these regulations. And as you go through life, they may not work out just exactly like you think they're supposed to work out. Are you man enough to sit down and say, Now, there are certain things that are non-negotiable in this family. And you can list those. And you're going to find it's a short list. But then there's going to be other things that you've set because that's your philosophy. That is your moral compass. That is your opinion. And you are saying, my family is going to do this. But I want you to pray that God helps you to understand where you can still be a godly man and you can negotiate without compromising. I could spend a lot more time on that, but I promise you I'd keep moving. Number four. Sir, be a godly motivator. I've observed two methods of motivation that incompetent, self-appointed, unskilled leaders often default to. If they don't have good leadership skills, I can guarantee you they are going to default to one or both of these styles of leadership. One is they motivate people by humiliation or they motivate people by intimidation, or both. How many of you sports people know the famous uh, basketball coach, Bobby Knight? (laughs) Okay, you know the temper tantrums, you know how he gets in the players' faces, how he's a, a screaming idiot, everybody know that? Would you say that this is an example of motivation by intimidation? The man has no leadership, motivational skills whatsoever except to try and scare his players into doing what he wants them to do. To physically confront them and assault them. Well, basketball coaches is a whole other story. What about husbands? What about fathers? Do you know any way to motivate your family without using your size and, and your voice? to try and scare them and make them think that if they don't do what you're calling them to do, that you're getting ready to skin them alive. That's just intimidation. And maybe you even use that on your wife. I don't know. I hope not. There's got to be more to motivating somebody other than resorting to that kind of a tactic. Humiliation. That's another one. As We, as parents, sometimes try to shame our kids into doing the right thing. Uh, Just humiliate them for having done something so wrong that we're hoping they feel so bad, so wretched, so disgusted with themselves that we've fixed that problem forever. Let me tell you some of the things that are good motivating factors and techniques. Number one, praise. Praise. Just when somebody does something good and you just brag on them, is there any reason to believe that they don't want to do that again? I can tell you personally in my life one of the most important things to me was to hear my father say that I had done a good job. That meant everything to me. And I lived most of my life craving my father's approval. You did good. That was a good job. My father was a little stingy with his praise. More than anything else, he always had to follow it up. You did good, but here's how it could have been better. That's not what I was looking for. I had probably preached for ten years of my life before I ever heard my father say with an unqualified statement, that was good. Because I sat there and waited for the butt, and it never came. Every time I preached, here's what you should have said. This would have been better. You talked too much about yourself. On and on and on. All I wanted to hear my father say was, Proud of you. You did a good job. I didn't want to hear every time how I kept falling short of his expectations. And so I've tried, I've tried so hard, and I don't know, you'll have to ask my boys. Don't ask my boys. I'll ask them. It's none of your business. I'll have to ask my boys if I succeeded in, in being able to, to tell them I'm proud of them without always being the one to try and tell them, here's how you can be better. Now You can see this sermon's coming from the bottom of my heart. Things that I've learned the hard way. But if you're going to be a good father, you're going to be the best father you can be, this is one of those things you really need to give some serious consideration to. Praise them. Let them know how good and how proud you are of them. You don't have to be the one to tell them where they fell short they're eventually going to figure that out they may even come and ask you sometime that would be a good time to discuss that but there's a time when all a child wants is to hear the parents say I'm so proud of you praise them number two attention that's a good motivator number three reward and advancement that's a wonderful motivator now let me go to the Bible to substantiate these God offers praise to motivate us Well done, good and faithful servant. That'll keep you going, won't it? When God ministers to you through the Holy Spirit and commends you for what you've done, well done. God knows that motivates his people. Number two, the attention I talked about. Repeatedly in the book of Revelation, in Speaking to these churches in, in, in this, this book, this phrase is used I have seen your good works. God's noticing, He's watching. I have seen your good works, your faith, your service, your perseverance. I know your difficult circumstances. You've remained true to my name. I know you have not renounced your faith. I know your afflictions. I know your po- poverty. But I say you're rich. In other words, God is noticing. He's paying attention. Now, I know you're not going to have a, a, a great uh, opinion of my father if I keep using him. <laughs> but I loved my father, and he had many good qualities, too. I'm just trying to share some things that I can bring this point home. But I played a little sports when I was in school. I was just not good enough for basketball. I couldn't hardly dribble the ball. I was clumsy. I wasn't tall enough. wasn't fast enough. Uh, so I, I sat on the bench the whole season. I was going to get a little playing time in the last game of the season. I want my parents to be there. They didn't come. Uh, I played a little football. Never had my parents ever come. I, I played a little Little League, and I actually I have a newspaper clipping from having taken my team uh, the, we, we we named them the the Indians. We always named our little league teams after the big league teams, and we were the Indians, and we were we were terrible. We were horrible. We were scrubs. We didn't have any athletes on our team. The Yankees got all the talent, but somehow, with that scrub team, we began to turn that season around. And when it came down to playoffs, we made the playoffs, and we made it to we advanced, and we advanced, and advanced. And the championship game was the Indians, and the Yankees. And I was the pitcher. Now, we lost. But I have the newspaper clipping. Although the Indians lost to the Yankees, uh, Rooks took the game in the Battle of the Pitchers. I love it. I read that every once in a while. It's <laughs> I always wanted my father to be there. Would you come watch a game? You never came and watched a baseball game the newspaper clipping is nice but i wish my father would have been there and just enjoyed what i enjoyed i'll i'll never know that i think he was afraid if he showed that any intention that i would become uh infatuated with the sports and never want to do anything else with my life. I think he's really scared of, the only place he could cheer me on is when I was preaching, but anything else I can't encourage that. He might, he might go the wrong direction. So when my boys began to get into sports, I was a wrestler. My dad never came and saw a single wrestling match. When my boys began to get into sports, my wife and I vowed we were going to be there. and We pastored And we traveled. And do you know how your body becomes permanently injured from sitting on bleachers? Week after week, hour after hour, particularly wrestling matches where you're there all day long. We got permanent indentations. Whenever they traveled, we traveled. We were there. There were a couple of times in all of those years where we absolutely, because of conflict, could not make it. But there were times we showed up and hardly anybody else showed up because of weather, whatever. Brooke's parents were going to be there. It just became so important to me, and that's what I want to share with you, my experiences of that bond that I built with my boys. It didn't matter if they were not the greatest athlete. I was their biggest cheerleader and my son my oldest son was a wrestler and he went his entire freshman year without a win and he went his entire sophomore without a win we went there and watched him get pinned over and, over and over and over and over and over and over again he went through his junior year and he started getting a few wins his junior year went into his senior year and got mostly wins his senior year but i mean like this this guy he couldn't he couldn't buy a win i was ready to bribe the other Just take a fall for my son, can you? But I was there. Didn't make any difference. I was proud of him. And I would encourage him. And I say, I know it's tough to go out there and lose and lose. But I said, God's building some character in you that is priceless. And when he got into the Navy... And one of his Navy buddies started griping about things. Suddenly, he went from being that child in high school now to being a man. And he went over and he said, sit down. I want to tell you a story about wrestling. How my dad kept motivated me on. How he we went and without any wins and how tough it was. But he said, I don't want to hear your belly aching and complaining because you're going to put up with a lot of losses. Now, can you see the lessons you learned because somebody cared and somebody was there and somebody was pouring into them? And so here in the book of Revelation, God says, I notice, I'm giving attention, I'm watching, I see what you're going through. But in the third chapter of Revelation and the 19th and 20th verse, he says, those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest and repent. And here's the famous passage. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens up the door, I'm going to come in. I'm going to spend some time with you. Because God realizes that's important for us to have His attention once in a while. And it's important for you, Father, to have that attention you can give to your children. And you know, do you realize that sometimes the behavior problems in children is because the only time they get your attention is when they're doing something wrong? Don't wait until it comes to that. Spend some time with them. And I, 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 I don't even want to talk about quality time. There is no quality time short of quantity time. There just isn't. You can't say five minutes of quality time because I can't spend this time with you. That's no quality to that whatsoever. Spend time with them. Invest in them. You don't have anything better to do in this life than to invest in your family. And the last one is reward and advancement. That motivates people. And in the parable of the talents, those that doubled their talents, the Lord said, you've been faithful in a few things, and I'm going to put you in charge of many things. So you can can advance people. Motivate them by advancing them. Motivate your children by rewarding the good behavior with more trust. I've trusted you with this. You've proven faithful. I'll trust you with more. Be a good motivator. Be a godly motivator. Be a wise motivator motivator number five learn to love your children unconditionally never use love as a carrot on a stick you will cause lifelong insecurities in your children i tell you this because i tried it and it it's it's rotten to the core when you withhold your affections for your children because you are not happy with what they've done and they cannot get close to you, and they try and come up, and they try and hug on you, and you don't want anything to do with them, you are using your love as a manipulator. You have to learn to love unconditionally. And that was another tough one I had to learn in my family, until I lined my boys up and set them down on the couch one day, and I said, Boys, I want to make an announcement. I want you to know, and make no mistake about it, from this day forward, It doesn't make any difference what you do. You may break my heart with the things you do. You may tear my insides out. But I want to let you know, no matter what you do, you're still my sons and I still will love you. And that was the hardest words to that point in my life I had ever had to spit out. Because I could imagine in my mind, my boys doing things so heinous, so repugnant, so repulsive, that I could lock the door and take the keys from. Don't, don't ever come back to this house. You have embarrassed me. You have humiliated this family. You, you just imagine these things. Don't you ever cross over the line. I will disown you. And I'm so glad I have a heavenly father that modeled something different for me. I'm so glad I have a heavenly father that never promised he was going to lock me out and say so you've embarrassed me, you've humiliated me. And so I decided I, I'm going to have to change my pattern here. To understand what it means to be a father with a broken heart. Who doesn't resort to the cheap self-serving option of saying, therefore, I want nothing to do with you. It takes more of a man to love them unconditionally than it does just to cast them off. Now, how many of you know the 23rd Psalm? You do, don't you? Everybody here. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want... Isn't that a beautiful song? Have you noticed, backing up to the 22nd Psalm, what that is about? This is about David asking God, Why have you forsaken me? Where have you gone? I can't feel you anywhere. I find no rest. Let me read this. Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day. But you do not answer by night. I find no rest. You are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In, our, in you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted. And you delivered them. To you they cried out. And we're, and were saved. And in you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm. I'm not a man. I'm scorned by everyone. I'm despised by people. All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, they shake their heads, and they say, well, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. You are the one, Lord, that brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even in my mother's breast. From, be- from birth, I was cast on you, and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help Isn't that sad? Just before the 23rd Psalm, he's saying, God, you've left me. I don't know where you are. Everybody hates me. I don't have a friend left, and I can't even feel you. And you know, sometimes our perception of God is shaped by our earthly experiences. Sometimes people's concept of God the Father is, is shaped by their experiences with their earthly father. If their earthly father was an abuser, they cannot approach the heavenly father because they think fathers are abusers. If their earthly father was cold and aloof and never there, they think that there's this God somewhere out there that doesn't care anything about us because they only relate to their earthly experiences. And that's the reason I'm telling you dads that to be there for your kids... Models for them that God can be there for them too. Loving them unconditionally. They never have to worry, have I lost my father's love? If you have pushed your children to the point where not only they know you're not happy with them, but they wonder if you even love them, I'm telling you, sir, you've pushed them too far. They should never have any doubt in their mind. You love them. They can know you're not happy with them. But they should never doubt your love. You can permanently damage them to where they're going to spend their life in relationship with their Heavenly Father trying to earn His love. And that's a miserable place to be. You can't earn His love. All you can do is receive His love by grace. That's it. You can't earn it. You can't be good enough that God loves you more or bad enough that he loves you less. So let's get that out of the earthly sphere. Love your children unconditionally. Number six, be a model of industry. Industry means hard work. I am deeply disappointed and I'm deeply concerned with what I see happening in our culture in the 21st century America. We have historically been a nation of people who understood the benefits of hard work. In the past century, we had the greatest generation, a term coined by Tom Brokaw in his book by the same name. Incidentally, it's a wonderful book. I read that. Those who came of age during the Great Depression and fought in World War II. How many of the greatest generation do we have here today? Raise your hands. Yeah, we've got some. You came of age during that time, you are the greatest generation. You are the ones that understood hard work. You are the ones that didn't try to game the system. You are the ones that realized it was about survival and you did whatever it took to survive. They were called the builders. They are the greatest generation. They were called the builders. You know why? Because they knew how to make things happen with their hands. They were very practical people. These were the people that they had a common religious heritage in that era with everybody else. They all had the common religious roots. They valued things like success and family and community. They had a great concern for people. And they lived by the financial philosophy. Very simple. Save, save, save. That's it. Whereas we have a generation that is spin, spin, spin. They don't understand the concept of saving. Talk to the greatest generation. Talk to the builders. Let them tell you the value of saving. Then you come to the next generation. You got the builders, and then you got the boomers. I'm a boomer, and the dynamics begin to change in the booming generation. This generation begin to move away from focusing on. What can I do to contribute to my church? How can I contribute to the well-being of my family? How can I contribute to my community? And they begin to move more and more to, where can I find a community that suits my needs? Where can I find a church that suits my needs? And they begin to move into, I want people to take care of me. I'm going to move to this community. They do this for me. And it wasn't immediate. It was just during the time of the boomers' generation, that that transformation of thinking began to take place. This church was built by people who understood how important it is to find out what can I give to my church. We've got people whose hands are all over the building here and the concrete and the electric and the plumbing. Try and get that from generation Y today. It's a totally different generation. Move from the boomers' To the busters generation x they became the first generation of latch key children first generation where the kids are given a key put on a string around their neck go home unlock the door go in and here's the directions for how to put something in the microwave and they begin to raise themselves because mom and dad were out making money They come home to empty house and notes, reminding them, take the garbage out and do your chores, don't get in trouble. The Busters grew up in more single-parent homes than the Boomers. Then the Busters gave birth to the Bridgers, Generation Y, the second generation of children from single-parent homes. They did not inherit basic handyman skills. They did not create toys out of cardboard tubes and scraps of wood. They entertained themselves with high-tech games and gadgets. And the past two generations did not produce near the volume of craftsmen or tradesmen. They didn't learn to work with their hands. They didn't have the incentive to get a paper route. They didn't go after an after-school job for spending money. It was just given to them. Here in America, because of the trend, we're losing our work ethic. America no longer works. It's difficult to find young people who know how to work. I know. I've been an employer. Ask Ann. She's an employer. Find young people that you give them a job, and they know how to work. You hire people that you have to teach them how to work. I've interviewed many people that I say, Now, you know, what I expect as an employer is I expect you to be responsible That just goes over their head. That's a new word. Never heard that. Never practiced it. I expect you to be responsible. I expect you to be on time, punctual. I expect you to be reliable. You can't just come and work on a whim. We need you. You are telling us you're going to be there. These are the things we expect of them. You know how many people we go through before we ever get anybody that understands those concepts? People that we hire that they come in when they want. They leave when they want. They call in when they want. They do what they want. Not all of them, but many are just like that. I can't say all. I don't want to generalize. But it's becoming more and more like that. The Jews used to say, if you did not teach your child a trade, you taught them how to steal. And Dad, I want to tell you one of the most important things you can do is to model for your children the discipline of being a hard worker. That will pay priceless benefits to know that you understand how to get out of bed in the morning and go and work all day long and come home bone-tired and still take care of your father duties. And your children see that, and they're going to grow up. And may I take just a moment, when you have the microphone, you can. But may I take just a moment to tell you I have three boys that have wonderful work ethics. And I look at that, and I'm just as proud as I can be as a father. And they have always shown good work ethics. And when I launched them out into the work field, into life, and I watched them as they dedicated themselves, and I remember some of my boys, Derek, here's the youth pastor here, going down and get a construction job in the valley in California. His first time out uh, on his own, and, and he's, he's, he's got a work ethic. He's showing up early before he has to punch the clock. He's getting the tools out. He's loading the truck up. He's doing all these things. And these people say, we've never seen anybody do it this before. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with him is dad got in him. I told him when I launched him out, you're not there to make money. You're there to make your employer money. And that's the kind of attitude you keep. If you're just there to make you money, you don't care if the employer makes it or not you're there to make your employer money you're going to prosper dad be industrious because it's biblical laziness is not biblical non-productivity is not biblical being industrious is biblical last point love your wife god's way and model what it means to be a godly husband to your children They will learn to treat women like dad treats mom. Little girls will learn what kind of relationships to pursue by the way dad treats mom. If dad is an abuser, the little girls have a high likelihood of going out and finding an abuser and marrying them because they think that's normal. They've watched mom be abused and stick with this loser. And they said, that's what I have to do. You ever seen, have you ever seen women that are chronically drawn to the losers? They get rid of one, they go find another one. Because something has been modeled in their life. And dad, the, the, the responsibility you have in modeling before your children, this is a way a godly man treats a woman that he is committed to. And they're watching. And they're going to learn and they're going to carry that on for life. And this is one of the most powerful challenges I am issuing to you today is learn to love your wife like Jesus loved the church and gave himself for it. Sacrificial, unconditional, gentle, caring, patient love. Anything less than that, you're falling short what God expects of you. You're, shorting what for short, you're falling short of what God has gifted you to be able to do. You can do it. It's in you. Model that. These are seven things I think are vitally important to be a man of God. The kind of dad, the kind of father that God wants you to be. All of these points have to do with being the father that has a right relationship with God. The best father in the world who fails to lead his family in worshiping and honoring God is still a miserable failure in eternal matters. When it comes my time to pass to the other side, I want to know that my family is going to be following me to the other side. I want the biggest and best family reunion in God's presence. I want to lead my family in godly matters. And the most important thing I can do as a father is to lead the way into eternal life and trust and pray that they follow me and someday we all end up in God's presence. That's what I want to do as a father. Bow your heads.